everyone's having a good Friday night. Hello, Zoom. We're going to give a few people a few minutes to join. I already see some folks hopping in. Right up the road, Barb Randall in Orlando, Florida is in the house. Kim Bossy, a whole bunch of folks over there at Birch Road Cellar in Chicago. We're going to talk about you guys in a second, giving a lot more people a chance to join. Hopefully everyone on Facebook can hear me. Uh, Sam and I are competing on backgrounds. His is likely more real than mine, but uh, we are really going to have a fantastic night tonight because we've got a bunch of special things happening. And uh, it really is going to be <laughs> show-stopping because we're trying some things we've never done before, which is what we do at Seller Angels. So I'll give this another 10 or 15 seconds while people jump on. Nick Schramm, Kay Jurica, John Laleganis, Jeff and Jane Greasy are in the house as usual, 30 Fridays in a row. Uh, Hans Greasy, new resident of Colorado, right up the road from Sean Manning and Marilyn Manning. Stacy Devorek, Tom Randall in a different room than his wife, Barb, but both on the broadcast this evening. I don't understand that. Uh, we call them Rob and Laura Petrie. I'm dating myself. Sam doesn't even know the Dick Van Dyke show. It's too young. All right, everyone, we're going to get started. Welcome, Facebook. Welcome, Zoom. This is Zoom. I'm sorry. This is SIP, Shelter in Place 30. 30 weeks in a row since the initial order was put in effect. Back in February, every Friday night, you've invited us into your living rooms, dining rooms, patios, back porches uh, to share some great wine with some great individuals. And tonight is no different. The folks that are on Zoom, the folks that are on Facebook participating, and everyone at Birch Road, uh, we want to raise a glass to you because as we say at Cellar Angels, we actually don't have customers, we have supporters. And they support us through thick and thin. They're a little bit more loyal than a customer. They want to see the company succeed because they know our mission. And our mission is something we're all involved in. And that's really transformation. So we're all kind of social entrepreneurs. And this whole thing has now been going on for 10 years. And they know that every single person who buys wine through Cellar Angels gets to pick a charity and the funds that we donate to that charity change lives. So we're leveraging the habit of fantastic wines. And as we say often here at Cellar Angels, we drink serious wines. We just don't take ourselves too seriously. And with the shelters in place, not showing any signs of slowing down, we're booked throughout the rest of the year and getting into early January. So stick with us. We're going to be coming into your living rooms for quite some time. We are thrilled to welcome with us this evening, Emma from Ink Factory. So Emma, if you would make yourself appear. Emma from, Emma from Ink Factory is going to be encapsulating and memorializing in ink exactly what Sam and I are talking about this evening. So it is an amazing system and we're gonna post the final artwork at the end, of, shortly after the end of the hour. And it's really gonna be Pretty impressive. You know, we talk, she draws, and at the end of this, we get to see it all. So, Emma, thanks so much for participating. Thanks, Martin. And then, obviously, Kim at Birch Road. I hope you guys have the glasses filled and are getting ready to learn about, taste some Riesling. And we thank everyone for going out, social distancing, because another thing we say at Cellar Angels, just because we have to social or physically distance doesn't mean we have to social distance. So here we all are together. And that was a really long intro because I can't wait to get to our first guest uh, and well, technically our only guest this evening, but um, Sam Baxter and I have known each other for quite a few years and he's been a friend of the company and we've actually been a friend of Tara Valentine and Sam's for going on the better part of a decade. 
We used to carry some of the production wines that were in the distribution channel at our wine store in Chicago, but it was really kind of some of the smaller production stuff that has always attracted us and we've been enamored with, for, with Sam for years and years and years. And tonight we're gonna to dig into a couple of those and discuss everything that's happening in Napa. So without much further ado, I wanna introduce everyone to Sam Baxter of Terra Valentine. Sam, thanks for spending your Friday with us. Hey, yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me, Martin. And it's, you know, it's been, uh, like you said, not, you know, so, uh, many years since uh, you know, I, I met you in uh, Chicago and, and uh, introduced you to the Terra Valentine wines. So, um, you know, it's great to kind of keep this going in a different format and, and be able to kind of talk about uh, you know, the past, the present and the future of what we're doing. So thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's our pleasure and honor. And for the wine club members on the call or on Facebook, they recognize Tara Valentine because we featured their wines to in one of all three of our quarterly wine clubs earlier this year to rave reviews. And for those of you that had a personal favorite, uh, we actually went and threw some of the wines up on the Cellar Angels website this evening. So if you want to grab something and replenish, absolutely do that because they aren't going to be there for long. And we were, Sam was kind enough and we had a couple extra. So we said, Hey, let's do it during the SIP broadcast. So let's jump in Sam and, and say, you know, Obviously, the backgrounds that we have, while they're virtual backgrounds, this is what you get to stare at every day. And you're, you're up on Spring Mountain. So walk people through some of the landmarks or other wineries that they would drive past if they were going to come up and see the vineyards behind me. Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, the, the view that, that you have there is actually like from our ranch at the very top of Spring Mountain. So we're kind of looking out um, behind you over uh, Paloma Vineyards, which is uh, my neighbor up there at the top of the mountain. Um, you've got Schweiger Vineyards in the background, kind of in the center, uh, Smith Madrone off to the left. And, you know, just off to the left, you'd also have uh, Barnett, uh, Vineyard 7 and 8, um, Sherwin family, Barron's family. Um, and then, you know, my, my view behind me is from uh, one of the vineyards down, uh, lower down on Spring Mountain, the Wordle Vineyard, which um, was the vineyard that was uh, where, where Terra Valentine really began. Um, Angus and Margaret Wordle bought this, uh, this vineyard behind me uh, in 1995. So that's kind of where our uh, Mountain Cabernet journey began. And so this is looking kind of south over the town of St. Helena uh, into the Napa Valley. That is awesome. And I want to say hello to uh, Scotland Kiefer, Diane Yetter, Debbie Long, Curtis Stanley, Don Silvestri, Don, we're neighbors now because we live in Florida. So you and I are gonna become friends, especially if you golf. And by that, I mean, if you can get me on a golf course. So uh, very nice to see you. Who else have I missed? Uh, Nick Schramm, I don't know if I got you. Tracy Smith, outstanding. Thank you all for joining, sitting here with Sam, enjoying. I'm enjoying the Riesling. And I know you actually found your first Riesling. And so you, what year did you first make Riesling? Uh, so yeah, I, I have a, I found a bottle of the 2008 uh, in my cellar, and that was the very first vintage that we harvested Riesling um, from this vineyard, and and it was kind of a you know uh, fairly uh, experimental really um, to to plant Riesling um, on this uh, this vineyard property, and uh, but other people on Spring Mountain have been making uh, Riesling uh, for you know since the 1950s, uh, Stony Hill. Uh, and Smith Madrone are two that, that have a, a very good track record making Riesling. But I wanted to make a, a drier style, so make something that's a little bit more reminiscent of, of you know, the, um, the Alsatian Rieslings or the Rieslings from Australia, which is actually where I kind of was introduced to, to bone dry uh, style uh, Riesling. Um, and so, 
you know, we planted a little bit in, uh, in kind of the shadier, cooler spots, uh, right up about 1800 feet elevation and, and let it ferment completely dry. So there's no residual sugar, which is, you know, most people you say, hey, you know, would you like some Riesling or what do you, you know, and they go, oh, you know, either they love it or they just go, I don't really like sweet wines. Um, so it's, it's some, it can be somewhat polarizing, but I think, um, you know, in, in this example, it's pretty exotic and, and it drinks kind of like a, like a Pinot Blanc or a, um, but it has a little more aromatics, you know, a little more tropical fruit, uh, a little like really interesting citrus notes. And, um, and so I think it's a really unique expression of that grape. Well, it's, and it's interesting too. And, uh, Adria Walker, hello. I, I've got a couple more folks, Jeanette Herniak and Amy Walker. Thank you so much for jumping on. You said something a second ago, you fermented it dry. What does that mean? Well, so um, typically with with uh, with Riesling production, you know they're gonna there's they're gonna leave some residual sugar in the wine, and and so depending on you know how high the acid is and and what at what level you pick it, um, additionally you know how much botrytis you might have in the Riesling, you're gonna have different levels of of sugar that's left over in the fermentation, and sometimes they stop it, you know by chilling it down. So they'll take the fermentation and and then turn the turn the cooling on and and shut it down right so you end up with a certain amount of residual sugar there or they'll add some back and 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 this has no sugar so it's as dry as a sauvignon blanc you know there's really no um and so when i say ferment dry i i, I let the natural process of the yeast fermenting all the sugar uh take place and and it, when, it, when the wines are young, when these Rieslings are young, they, they tend to be pretty acidic and, and have like really powerful minerality. But as they age, you know, that, that acid starts to soften and you get kind of a creaminess, a really soft, creamy texture. And the fruit is mingled in there. Um, you get a little bit of those kind of that oiliness that you can find in Riesling. Um, but that, as that acid softens um, and that there's no sugar there to kind of cover that acid up, the wine becomes really um yeah really kind of clean and crisp and really holds on to that minerality as well well it's and it's such an expressive varietal and for those of us that were ruined on riesling because of blue bottles that were in our refrigerator or in our grandmother's refrigerator uh it was always cloyingly sweet it right. was you know just that syrupy unctuous style that w was not good and so it, it was almost as you were turned off by riesling but you're right this one Interestingly enough, it could almost pass for a Sauvignon Blanc, like you said, but it has some really steely minerality on it, a lot of nuance, a lot of the tropical fruit. I'd be curious what the 2008 is tasting like. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the color is, is a little bit darker, um, but you know, for, for a 12-year-old white wine, it's still very lively on the palate. Uh, the fruit is kind of, I, I would say, you know, I, the, the younger vintage, what do you have, the 13, right? That's the... Um, I believe yep. it's the 13. You know, that's going to have more like um, lemon curd and, and like really kind of bright citrus notes. Um, and the 08 is, is tending to lean more towards like marmalade. So it's kind of like a, an orange. There's a slight bit of um, kind of bitterness on the finish from um, kind of those citrus notes and that oiliness, those kind of um, those terpenes, that real tropical fruit yep. is, is there, but it's, it's got a little bit more of this, uh, this oily character, which is also something that is really specific to to the riesling varietal uh tracy smith hello amy mcgowan is in the house amy a big longtime cellar angel and napa valley super fan uh so amy yeah, thanks for joining us um what was the decision how did you decide to 
you said it was kind of an experiment. Did you, was it, uh, did you lose well, a bet experiment? Did you, how, and how you much know, were you I think it was, it, it was a, so we had areas, we were planting this 25 acre vineyard. It was called, we called it the Eberdon Vineyard. It was on the side of the old Eberdon property up at the top of Spring Mountain. And um, historically they had grown uh, Gewurztraminer there. And, and there were some cool spots on the property that just were not going to be suited for red wines. So, you know, we, we kind of ran through the options. Okay, Chardonnay, but not, you know, the Angus Wordle was not a big fan of Chardonnay, didn't drink a lot of it. We thought Sauvignon Blanc, but then we were like, well, we can get really good Sauvignon Blanc from the Valley floor or other locations. And uh, so kind of through process of elimination and somewhat my sort of a winemaking contrarian attitude where I was like, what can I do that's totally different? What can we have that, you know, there's some history on this mountain, but it's not something that everyone's going to have uh, in their in their wine club. And um, and so, you know, um, I really felt like Riesling was going to be a fun challenge and adventure for us. And um, and I think we had a great time with it. It was really a lot of fun. Um, and typically, we ended up having to kind of pour a glass and serve it to people uh, rather than ask them if they wanted Riesling. You know, if you say, hey, would you like some Riesling? Most people be like, yeah, you know, maybe not. Uh, but when you say, here's a glass of white wine, and they would say, wow, this is amazing. It's really different, really exotic. Um, it was, so it was fun. It was, we kind of, we really turned a lot of people on to, to dry Riesling. Well, and I think, and Kim, I'd be interested at Birch Road, what the audience's consensus is on the Riesling, because to your point, yeah, you've got an 08, so that has some longevity and age on it. Uh, the 13, seven years is still, you know, nothing to frown at. I mean, that's a considerable amount of time for a white wine specifically. And this is still extremely lively, has great acidity. Uh, like I said, very racy minerality and, and a lot of depth and nuance of some of those tropical notes that you talked about. So it's uh, very impressive. So I'd be very curious what some of the other folks in the chat are talking and, and seeing what they're super, uh, super clean, well-rounded, bright. Uh, I was surprised on my first sip. Not at all was I, I was expecting. So a lot, a lot of folks, I, I think, are quite pleasantly surprised by this wine. Fantastic. Um, how many cases? I can't remember that. Uh, we just did a, a couple hundred cases of this wine. So it's very small production. Um, and, uh, you know, something we never put into distribution. It was only for our wine club. We poured it in our tasting room. And um, so it never really made it uh, very far out of the winery. That's fantastic. And I love the idea of when people come up for a taste or whatever, you just hand them a glass of this. Uh, <laughs> just kind of, you know, because let's be honest, getting, getting up and down Spring Mountain is a journey in and of itself. Right. And so people want to have their whistles wet at the end of that journey. And this is absolutely a great wine to do that with. Absolutely. And, and in addition to not only we have Emma drawing for us, we've got Kim hosting a large party. We actually have an in-house studio audience here uh, for Cellar Angels uh, because we're getting ready to go public and we have our bank examiner. Uh, actually, no, we're not going public. Uh, these are, are two of our friends and uh, Denise's BFF, so she's going to introduce them. Okay, good. Michelle and RJ are in the house. Uh, they actually have been sedated, so not a lot of talking out of them right now. Enjoying the wine. Enjoying the wine. Both of them... Uh, confessed that this surprised them and they're very interested in this wine and, and it really is especially for the heat down in Florida this is a fantastic wine so there and Jeff Greasy never thinks Denise is here so 
again, proof that in fact she exists. This is another, this is another like wine pairing, you know, if, uh, for this Riesling, if you, if you enjoy like uh, oysters, raw oysters, um, it's really a stunning pairing to, to pair um, raw oysters uh, with this Riesling. Like the, it really brings out that, those citrus notes, that minerality, it's, it's really a great pairing. But any kind of seafood will, will you know, do well with it. But we used to have kind of Riesling and, and oyster parties uh, with this wine and it was always uh, you know, really a, a fun event. Well, I could imagine this, like you said, with any shellfish, but boy, oysters sounds fantastic. And again, so you got turned on the Riesling, did you say Alsace? Well, it's really, and uh, originally when I was in Australia, I, I worked uh, down there um, in, I guess it was the 1999 harvest. Um, and, uh, you know, I got introduced to some of these, uh, the Riesling from the Clare Valley, the Eden Valley, and... Um, and just had never had bone dry Riesling before. And, and then as I kind of expanded on that and, and found that, you know, the Alsatian style, as I began to research and kind of learn more about it, found that region to be kind of an area that produced pretty, um, you know, pretty exceptional um, drier styles. Um, but it's, you know, those are all, they're very different. I mean, Spring Mountain and, and you know, Riesling is kind of its own animal <laughs> altogether, so. That's, I mean, I, I love the experiment. and. I was unaware that it was actually in the portfolio because obviously when we first met at a distribution event, it wasn't there. And then coming up, you know, to taste, it wasn't something that we probably started with. So this has been a fantastic surprise because it is really, really a refreshing wine. Uh, we have a question from Tracy. Where was it planted on the site and why did you choose that section of the estate? And I'm going to say because it was cooler. Yeah, so we, we actually had like, I think three different spots on the property where, where we had little, little parts, uh, little parcels of, of Riesling planted. And they were mostly on the, the areas that either got a lot of shade in the morning or shade in the afternoon. So you kind of wanted the red grapes to get more full sun exposure. And then the Riesling were kind of down at the bottoms of the, of the blocks or up at the kind of the edges where um, where they tended to get more shade. And so um, they don't require as much, didn't, didn't require as much sun exposure just uh, to, to get ripe and actually help to hold on to um, that acidity by not getting it quite as warm in the afternoons. Fantastic. I'm a big fan, big fan. Doug Rutherford, hello, sir. Thanks for joining. So walk us through the portfolio. And I mean, I know we're going to get the, to the big cabs I did have someone, uh, Scotland Kiefer, who admitted, because we have a very authentic, honest fan base, uh, Sam, he said, I'm being contrarian tonight. I don't have the Riesling, but he has the Fountain Grove Cabernet, and it kills. Nice. Um, so very excited about that. But so, so walk me through this portfolio, because it, it's grown, it's shrunk. You, you've got just so much great wine. How do you decide what actually makes it in the bottle? Well, you know, it, it has evolved over the years, you know, I mean, you know, with, with our first vintage being in 1999 and, and, you know, now, you know, 21 years later, um, you know, there's definitely been some evolution um, over, over time. And our, our focus has always been red wines and big, you know, bigger style, full bodied mountain wines. Uh, but I've always liked to kind of balance out the portfolio with, with some lighter reds as well. And so, uh, but, you know, with the white wines, you know, um, it, it's really centered around the vineyard and finding out spots that, um, finding vineyards that produce really distinct 
wine. So um, our current white wine um, that we have now is a, um, that we're just pouring is our uh, Kick Ranch Sauvignon Blanc. So it's a Sauvignon Blanc from the Fountain Grove district. So just to the west of Spring Mountain in Sonoma and Mountain Grown Sauvignon Blanc. So it's very phenolic, it's very structured. Um, and, uh, and then I still, I, I make a, a Pinot Noir that, and, oh, go ahead, Martin. Phenolic? Phenolic. I'll take, okay. I'll take phenolic for 500, please, Alex. Yeah, so, you know, this, the grape skins, um, all the, are, are loaded with, with uh, compounds um, right. that are kind of phenolic compounds. It's, it, they are, that's where the tannin, that's where the color comes from. These are all, and, and white wine typically, you know, you're pressing those grapes right off, uh, right as you get them into the winery. So you're minimizing the skin contact. But uh, with really intense uh, sites and, and wines that, you know, grapes that are maybe have thicker skins in mountain grown white wines, for instance, you can get a little bit more structure and that phenolic structure in a white wine comes in from those skins. So you're not getting color from those skins, but you are getting texture and weight and body to the wine. Well, uh, the audience is going to be thrilled to know that what is phenolics is not a poll question. So, but, but I, I do think that it's, it's always beneficial when you hear a term to just ask, okay, well, hang on, what did that mean? Because from an education standpoint, the more we know about something, the more it becomes enjoyable. And so I appreciate you taking time there. Uh, but I do want to actually launch our first poll question. So I know this is the amount of the time in the evening where people push the kids out of the way and they want to get to the computer keyboard. So get ready uh, because... We got poll question number one. Sam has been walking these vines since acquiring the property in late 2007. Since he was a child in 1999, while he was trailing his winemaker father as a child. And I do these questions, Sam, literally like a month ago, so I don't remember them. <laughs> um, I do have, we've got 55% of the people voted and you can't say anything just yet. So ooh, we see, I see a lot of back and forth. Um, interesting. All right, we're gonna give this five, four, three, two, one. There may be no right answer, but there's probably a really, really close answer. Because I think I have the year screwed up and I'm not certain, like you said, your father was a consultant, but he was a winemaker later on, right? Uh, yeah, no, he's, he is, is still a winemaker. Um, you know, he started making wine in the Napa Valley in, in 1969. So um, he's worked for a number of different wineries and, you know, helped start up some, some uh, you know, really famous wineries. I mean, he, um, you know, so he's, he's been around the valley quite a while. So I did, uh, I did grow up um, walk, following him around, following his footsteps for sure. Perfect. So actually... 60% uh, of the audience got that right. For the people that did not pick C, you can re-ante. Uh, this round increases the ante. It's like the blinds go up now. So uh, the next question is going to be a little bit tougher. Let's move on to the red wines. Uh, and you grew up in the valley. So obviously Cabernet is king and, and has been. But I know some folks are, are into the Merlot right now. So yeah. what is your philosophy on, on the red wine portfolio and, and talk to us about, here's what I'm trying to get out of each vineyard block or each vineyard right. site and what I want it to do. Well, you know, again, going back to, to growing up there and, you know, I would sit around the, the dining room table with my dad. I was in high school 
and he'd bring wines home to blend and he'd be you know working on the his cabernet or his merlot and he'd say okay i'm going to try a little bit of this cabernet into the merlot and, and he'd you know give me a glass say well, okay what do you think and i'd say well i like that and you know so i started learning really you know really the some of the first things i learned in winemaking um was was that art of blending and the magic between the, those grapes, the Merlot, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Franc, and, and, and how they can really um, bring out the best in each other and, and really how a winemaker can, can kind of channel those wines into his uh, or her particular style objectives, what they want that wine to become. And so, you know, with Cabernet being, you know, the king, the most age-worthy, the, the biggest, uh, most powerful wine, you know, I've always been captivated by the elegance of Mer Merlot, the finesse, the way that you can have such beautiful dark fruit um, and and without that tannin structure, you know, um, and Cabernet Franc to me, you know, is really captivating with its elegance and its richness, the, you know, the mid palate weight that it can bring um, and the, the floral notes that it has that, that Cabernet doesn't have. So sometimes I feel like Cabernet can be this really like big sturdy wine but the Merlot and, and Cabernet Franc are maybe the more like uh, you know more complex wines to work with and so to me you know you really couldn't ha you can't have just one of those like you need for me I need those three wines in my uh, in my cellar to be able to make the Cabernets great make the Merlot great and make Cap great Cap Francs they all have to be there working together at some level. Well, I have a, a couple folks who shall remain nameless, Nelson Holden, uh, with regards to, they want to see where you're actually located. And so we do a segment with Google Earth that is uh, really a show-stopping number. So let's get to Google Earth because it is oftentimes the favorite part of the presentation. And let's hope Google Earth behaves. So here we go. And, I, and I've got some orientation for you, Sam, So and actually for the audience, so we can see kind of if we pull back, it's kind of interesting that you can see really how close the Pacific is and, and the maritime influence there. And then, you know, mid valley right in this area, up valley, St. Helena, even further, Calistoga. And if we just kind of zoom in, you can very easily see how the topography changes. And, and you talked specifically early on about mountain fruit. And if, if we go further and hone in on, on Terra Valentine, it gets pretty serious pretty fast as it relates to uh, the steepness of the, of the incline. And, and I think this has got to be not only extremely rewarding, but also intensely challenging to craft and produce wine up here. So, so what is it about mountain fruit that, that captures you and why, and by the way, it captures me as well, more so than Valley floor fruit. What is it that, that, what does it bring to the final product that is different than Valley floor? Well, I, I think that, that this view really, really shows you the, the diversity in the terrain. And so when you're working with a 100 or 200 acre vineyard on, on the valley floor, you're going to have very little um, uh, diversity in those soil types. It'd be very consistent and you're really shooting for kind of uniformity in that vineyard. And, and if you look at Spring Mountain and all these different blocks, you know, those are, there's different soil types, there's different exposure, there's different elevation, there's cooler locations, there's warmer spots. And, and all of those little blocks, those just little corners of those vineyards are gonna give you different, um, 
you know, different flavors. So actually th these vineyards that you're looking at are Paloma's vineyards. So these are my neighbors. So I'm kind of, I'm the backside of, of that mountain. Um, no way. And so right where, yeah, right where you are there is, um, yeah, so I don't have- uh, Can so, someone yeah, get Google on the phone and let them know their map is wrong? Yeah. Um, no, yeah, you try, try following that on your GPS to find us and you'll get lost pretty quick. Well, um, are you over here? Yeah, that's that's the bottom of our property. You can see kind of those that, that those um, those cleared fields there, and um, and then uh, and as you kind of rotate over to to the right there, you'll see um, kind of the top of the property. So in fact, this this estate, um, this property, we've just been um, been up here since 2015. So we're just in the process of of getting all of our permits to plant vineyard and to um, to build a winery on that site. So, um, but I work with vineyards that are kind of scattered all over that mountain, kind of both, both the Napa side and Sonoma side. And is there different, I mean, I've obviously we're familiar with a lot of your, your neighbors from the Keenans to Kane to Schweigers to Pride, uh, pretty famous mountain up there. It, it does every, part of the, is it soil structure, elevation, exposure, uh, you know, above the cloud line, all of that just imparts its own nuance to the final uh, flavor of the bottle or, or what wine you're getting. How do you balance it all? Well, I think it, you, each site, you know, you're going to have certain things that are fixed, you know, the, the, your exposure, your soil type, like you can't do anything about that. But, you know, what you plant there, so whether you plant Merlot or Cabernet Franc or Riesling or um, and what rootstock you use, how you choose to farm those vineyards. That's where, you know, the winemaker begins to really kind of have their input on, on what, what type, what the character of that fruit and what that wine is going to be from those different sites. And so that's what I really love about Spring Mountain is that it's a, you know, with, with how diverse the terrain is up there and how, you know, the different soil types, the different exposures, um, you know, what you plant there and what you grow there and your house style, how you farm that vineyard, when you pick the fruit, what you do in the winery really will, you know, make your wine taste much different than your neighbor's wine. Um, even if, you know, the vineyards are very close by, but there's a, there'll be a family resemblance. You know, there are some characters fr from the fruit that you get on that mountain that um, are going to be in, in all of the wines regardless of what clone you're using, how you're farming. So like, like in Spring Mountain, we often talk about this cocoa powder texture to the wine, this almost kind of chocolatey flavor in the red wines. And you know, they, you hear a lot about the Rutherford dust, um, mm -hmm. but I always talk about the Spring Mountain cocoa powder because that's, it's that bittersweet chocolate. It's, and it's there, it's really in you know, certain vintages, you, you might get more of it and, and you know, maybe how ripe you pick or what, how you farm might, might uh, impact how much you get. But it's definitely something that is kind of a common thread, a kind of a family uh, resemblance uh, in the reds from up on Spring Mountain. That's funny. It's, I am a huge fan of that cocoa powder dust. And it is interesting that I, I just love Spring Mountain fruit, but no one after 20 some odd years of drinking it has basically, or as elegantly as you just stated, has that fingerprint, if you will, throughout great Spring Mountain cabs. And you're right, there is that cocoa powder, uh, dusty softness to it that is just fantastic. What, um, you mentioned that each producer is gonna have that little bit of signature that's gonna be consistent across, but there's also winemaking techniques. What you do, 
uh, how you grow and, and the viticultural aspect of it. What is your philosophy? Um, you know, I think, you know, broadly speaking, you know, my goal is to, you know, really try to, to coax out the, that distinct character of the vineyard in the fruit without having to do too much input. Um, but, you know, in general, um, I'm, a, I'm a very strong proponent of, of very low irrigation. So as little water as we can possibly give those vines um, in order to have them really focus in on, on ripening the fruit, getting small berry size, um, a little more intensity into the wine. You know, I do, I do a lot of canopy work. I think canopy work on Spring Mountain is very, very important. So, you know, when I say that, I mean about like the leaves, you know, pulling the leaves on the morning side, shading the leaves on the afternoon side. Because if you see in those, you know, those vineyards, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of turns and, you know, the vineyards are often following the contour lines. They're not a straight line. And so right. you really have to protect some spots from, from afternoon sun and other spots you need to really um, encourage sun to get in on those clusters to make sure you move away from those vegetal flavors greener flavors, um, which you can get on Spring Mountain. It, it is a cooler location. You know, we get a lot of that influence from the Pacific Ocean, as you can see from that map. And so, you know, if you're not careful with that with, and, and you overwater and you have huge canopies, um, you can end up with green flavors in, in, the, in the wine, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But um, for me, I think, you know, people are really looking for, I want to show off the fruit and the spice and the richness um, but I still feel like, um, you know, you, my goal in the, at, in the end is to have balanced wines. So I want to show off the character of those vineyards with its personality, but I'll, I also don't make wines that are kind of overblown. I don't push those vineyards so far that I'm picking as ripe as I possibly can to make the biggest wine that I possibly can. I want these wines to age. I want them to go with food. I want them to be balanced. And that kind of harkens back, I think, to um, you know, learning how to blend wine and, and tasting the wines that my dad was making in Napa in the 70s and 80s, which were a very different style than, than a lot of the, the wines from Napa now. And so sure. I think you'll see that kind of a consistent thread through my wines is that they're not overblown. You know, they're definitely ripe enough to where you're getting fresh ripe fruit flavors without that kind of overdone jammy sweetness to the wines. Um, and that's sort of, you know, and that's, I think, starts in the vineyard um, with getting ripeness, getting good flavor without having to push the sugars uh, too high. What, um, you, it's interesting, you mentioned vegetal characteristics, and that's, it's, I'm fascinated by the fact that a lot of that has to do with canopy management, because you, you make a, a very, very decadent Cab Franc that is anything but vegetal that's actually being enjoyed by someone right now. And, and that too, I would imagine, has benefited from canopy management, because you can, there's a lot of, I don't want to say bad Cab Francs, but boy, you instantly know it because of its green pepper, uh, vegetal characteristics. But when you find a fantastic Cab Franc, that wine absolutely sinks and, and yours yep. is in that caliber. So is that all canopy management? Um, it, it's partly canopy management for sure. And, and, I, and I do, you know, Cabernet Franc is really one of my favorite grapes to work with on Spring Mountain. Um, but it, you know, one of, the, one of the critical parts of Cabernet Franc is it has to be planted in the right locations. So uh, both, you know, the Cabernet Franc that, that we planted on, on the uh, Everdon Vineyard in the past and the Cabernet Franc that I work with now were both planted, um, you know, around the same time, kind of the early 2000s. And they were planted in, in those vineyards on the, the shallowest, rockiest soil in that vineyard. So places that you would normally 
think are very well suited for Cabernet, we actually took those spots and planted the Cabernet Franc just to kind of double down on insurance that um, we weren't going to get those um, the, that have vines that were too vigorous, meaning they're going to grow these big canopies and, and kind of tend to, to contribute more of those vegetal flavors in the wine. So it starts sort of with planting on really rocky, well-drained soil. And then it comes to, to kind of making sure you're getting a lot of light in on that can on that fruit itself. And, and you have to watch your yields. You can't overcrop it. You know, you have to really manage so your each cluster is hanging there. It's not bunched up against other clusters and that it's getting the right amount of morning sun, but you have to protect Cabernet Franc from the afternoon sun. It's really susceptible to sunburn and bleaching um, leaching out it from from uh, too much sun and too much heat, so it's it is it is you know somewhat more fragile than uh, than Cabernet Sauvignon. That's fascinating, and and I'm a big fan of Cabernet Franc, so I'm I'm glad that you have a dogged pursuit at, at near perfection <laughs> on that mountain with those. It's interesting. We we talked about the Riesling and another uh, variety that you grow that is not very popular, Sangiovese. Right. So, so where was that inspiration? Because the Amore has also been very well received in the wine club. And we've, we've actually got a lot of uh, folks that have sent us emails saying that was amazing. And people tonight are even drinking it. So nice. how Sanjo and, you know, or why Sanjo and, and the inspiration behind that? Yeah, so you know that, that's, a, that's another grape that I, we actually don't grow ourselves. Um, I've been working with a vineyard over on the Atlas Peak area in, um, and it's, um, it's actually owned by the Antonori family. So okay. you're talking about sure. legendary uh, Italian family. And so in the, uh, you know, the late generations or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So in the late nineties, um, they planted a vineyard um, up on Atlas Peak and the Antonori family actually brought over cuttings from their vineyards, uh, their Brunello vineyards in, in Montalcino and planted it up on the top of Atlas Peak. And so uh, in 2002, uh, the founder of Terra Valentine, Angus Wordle, came to me. He'd just gotten back from a trip to Italy and he said, you know, you know, it'd be really great to make a super Tuscan. Those wines are so amazing. And my first instinct was like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. You know, like <laughs> California Sangioveses are pretty terrible. Like, yep. how are we going to do this? How is it going to compare to the Spring Mountain Cabernet? How am I? Gonna... And so, um, you know, I set out to kind of find fruit and, and I really was lucky to stumble upon this vineyard up on Atlas Peak. So it was, you know, mountain grown fruit, which sort of, again, it, that's in my wheelhouse. And, right. and it's the Sangiovese Grosso clone. So it's, it's not that you're kind of light Chianti, you know, in the basket bottle with the candle sticking out kind of Sangiovese. Oh. Uh, you know, this is a Brunello version of Sangiovese. And so, you know, smaller berries, you know, really intense fruit. And um, so I've been, you know, making that Amore for quite a while. And um, I do blend in um, a little bit of Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet from Spring Mountain. So about 10%. Um, I blend into that Sangiovese just to, you know, fill out the pieces uh, sure. in that wine. Um, but uh, I think it's, yeah, it's really a fun wine. I mean, it really is, you know, can go with all types of food. I mean, we used to jokingly call it our pizza wine. I mean, it's a wine you can really just kind of pop the cork and, and, and drink, you know, regardless of what you're eating or if you're eating. Um, or if you're, if you're eating. Yeah. I mean, if you just want to, you know, drink your calories, it's a great wine for that. <laughs> 
we're, we're very familiar with that exercise routine. <laughs> on Spring Mountain, how many acres do you have under vines? So right now, um, the, the Spring Summer Ranch property we bought in 2015, it's 112 acres. And currently there's zero acres of vineyard on that property. So um, I, can't, I couldn't afford to buy any property that had vineyards already planted on it. So I had to buy um, raw earth. Um, and there's a small house there that we were using as uh, for our tastings and kind of as our office. Um, but I've been working with vineyards on Spring Mountain and, you know, in, on the Sonoma side, uh, you know, relationships that I, that I have that go back, you know, two decades. And so for me, at this point, I've been able to really continue to make the, the great wines that we have in our portfolio by working with neighboring vineyards, where I still ha I have a lot of control. I have a lot of say in what happens. Um, you know, the founders of Terra Valentine, Margaret Wordle, um, Angus has passed on, but she still owns the Wordle Vineyard where I still get some Cabernet Sauvignon. So, you know, it's not on my balance sheet, but it's still, you know, can, you know, a vineyard that I, you know, have very close connection with. So, um, you know, I do hope to plant our, our vineyard, um, our property. So there's about, uh, about 10 acres plantable. I've, you know, I've had a guy up there calling for the spotted owl for three years. I've had all the plants and animals studied up there. And so it's a, it's a process, you know, so um, kind of I'm, I'm mired in that process right now, but hope to kind of be making some headway. And, and with the recent fires, everything has sort of changed now. That whole mountain is, is changed. And, and so, um, you know, I'm hoping that I can get some vineyard going in the ground pretty soon. I think it'll be a good way to help that land uh, heal after, after the fires. Well, and I think, and you talked about an office and a tasting room up there, and tragically, that also succumbed to the fire. And, and I think you just said it from a healing standpoint, a, a vineyard project to, to put it in the ground and start it from scratch, uh, boy, that, that could be, have some cathartic effect. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think so. And I mean, I was always very conflicted about, you know, there are some parts of that property I thought this is a slam dunk for a vineyard. And, you know, then I'd go out and I'd walk I'd be hiking through the, the woods with my kids and we'd be hunting mushrooms and looking at wildflowers. And, and I'd be like, wow, this, you know, it's a beautiful forest. It's tough. You know, you know, it's not something I set out to, to, um, you know, to convert that forest into vineyard. And, but after, after these fires, it, it feels very different. And, with um with the forest now changed forever at least for for uh, you know decades uh, it feels like there's some amount of vineyard particularly up around the top of the property so as we rebuild uh, vineyards are, are very good fire breaks so it seems like it's just a very prudent thing and appropriate now whereas you know it, you know two or three years ago it was going to be it was a little bit more um you know conflicting right and I, I know you talked about a fondness for Cabernet Franc and a relatively probably unfair, might not be strong enough question. Do you, do you have a favorite wine that you produce uh, off the property? And is, and is there one that is squirrely? That's a devil of a wine to produce, but when you do produce it, you're, you're very glad that you, you know, engage in that battle. Yeah, you know, I feel like, um, you know, at the end of the day, the wine that I, that I end up being the most proud of is, is my kind of my reserve Cabernet. And I bottle that under a, a label that I call Fortel, uh, which is F-O-R-E-T-E-L-L. -L. And 
So it's like, a, it's my reserve Cabernet. And I, I always blend in a good, a good uh, amount of Cabernet Franc. Um, I don't make it in every year. I make it in the years where I really feel like this is a wine that, that can stand up, stand to the test of time. It's one that can age uh, for, you know, decades potentially. And, um, wow. and, and that's really, to me, I, I do feel like that is kind of the paramount blend. Now I feel like moving forward, you know, the Cabernet Franc is a wine that I'm, that I'm always really enamored with. That's the wine that I, you know, that I do end up, that and the Merlot, I'll kind of um, go through phases where, where that's really all I want to drink. Um, and right now I'm kind of, I'm kind of, um, I'm kind of into the Fountain Grove Cabernet Sauvignon. So that. Oh, that's a, that's a relatively newer size of the portfolio. And I do have a couple of folks, Scotland in particular, uh, I think mind blowing Cabernet might have left or is on the screen in the chat with regards to how excited he is about the Fountain Grove Cab. So go ahead and share with us kind of the philosophy behind that area. Yeah. So, I mean, up until, so in 2014, the Wordle family uh, got out of the wine business and, and I bought the Terra Valentine business from them. So at that point, it was just the brand and our, our club membership, our inventory, uh, but, but no, no hard assets, no real estate involved. And so, you know, I set out right away and started kind of finding a new home estate for Terra Valentine. And so in 2015, we bought the Spring Summit Ranch estate, which is up at the top of Spring Mountain um, on Spring Mountain Road. But it's interestingly enough, it's actually the first property across the county line into Sonoma. And so as you cross the county line from Napa into Sonoma, it ceases being the Spring Mountain District AVA and actually becomes the Fountain Grove District AVA, which is a new AVA that was just started in 2015. So, you know, very few people have heard of it, um, but it encompasses the Sonoma County side of Spring Mountain and Diamond Mountain on that Mayakama oh, wow. mountain range. Cool. And so I thought, you know, here, here I am, my, my driveway is on Spring Mountain, uh, in Spring Mountain District, and, but our property is, is now in this new Fountain Grove District on Sonoma. So I thought it would kind of feel like I have one foot in either side, and we're kind of positioned right up at the top, looking out over both Napa and Sonoma. You can see the Pacific Ocean from there, and you can look down and see Calistoga and the vineyards there. So it's a really unique perspective. And I wanted to start working with fruit on the Sonoma side because it's you know, the way the birds are flying around, you realize it's not that different. You know, it may not say right. Napa Valley on it or Spring Mountain District, but it's still part of that region, that mountaintop region on the Mayacamas mountain range there. And so I, the 2016 Fountain Grove District Cabernet is the first vintage of that, of that wine comes from a vineyard that I'm under a, an NDA, so I can't tell you the name of that vineyard, but- There's, um, there's no, actually Sam, everyone dropped off, you can share. Yeah, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's basically just to the west of Pride Mountain Vineyards. So Pride is another, uh, uh, one of my neighbors that, that their property is about 60% Sonoma, 40% Napa. And so on all their bottles, they don't say Spring Mountain or Fountain Grove, right. they say 60% Sonoma, 40% Napa. And, um, and so, uh, so this vineyard, that Fountain Grove vineyard is just, just to, to the west of them. And, uh, you know, so it is a little bit cooler, I would say. I mean, it gets more sun than the Napa side because it's west facing. So you get long afternoon sun, but you do get a little bit more um, cooler, kind of cooler breezes, co cooler temperatures overall. So the fruit tends to be less black fruit 
and a little bit more red fruits, which I really, right. which I really love. I mean, and, but it's red currant. It's dark fruit still, but it's um, a little bit more finesse, a little bit more elegance versus the kind of more, you know, darker, more, um, you know, hedonistic style. Maybe you get on the Napa side. No, that's a great description. And uh, Doug Rutherford, while we all may not be from Minneapolis, there are worse footsteps to follow in than Angus Wordle. So I agree with you there. Uh, which brings us to our second poll question. And this might have an ink flare or an art flare to it. I don't want to give it away, though. So let's go to question two. Uh, Emma, this evening, this is a little factoid for all of you. So the brain processes visuals 60,000 times faster than text or listening. As humans, we can remember what amount of what we see and what we read. 80% of what we see, 10% of what we hear, 60% of seen, 25% of what we hear. We can remember 100% of cat videos and 0% of insurance seminars. <laughs> like I said, we drink serious wine at Cellar Angels. We just don't take ourselves too seriously. So this one has a little bit of science to it. So uh, for those of you that have studied neuro-linguistic programming, I count myself among them, let's just see what we have to learn with regards to what the brain can retain visually versus what we hear. So I'll give this another five. Do you have any ideas, Sam? I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking for me personally, it's definitely the 80-10. We'll go five, four, three. We have people with videos, cat videos, I love it. Two, final votes. And we're done. All right, let's see what we got. So Sam is in the 80-10 camp and he didn't even vote. We've got 50% of the audience going with 60-25 and a lot of people that have perpetual free time to look at cat videos. Uh, the answer is in fact 80-10. So you are correct. And I think it's interesting because being a winemaker, you have to visually look at a, quite a few different attributes uh, with regards to the, to the vine, to the grapes, to the canopy. So you're visually remembering all of that. That actually makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, it's, and it's really like, it's interesting because when, when I'm learning a new wine or, or I'm trying to understand wines, if I'm not there kind of looking at the terrain, looking at the topography, looking at, you know, the exposure, um, if I'm just reading about the stats, it does nothing for me. But when I can see those vineyards then, and taste the wine or see the, see the regions, you know, then I go, okay, yeah, I, can, I understand why this wine tastes like it does. I can see it, what's happening in the vineyard. I can see what, how these vines are growing, and I can taste those attributes in the, in the wine. Very cool. Is there... We talked a little bit about the fires and that's given you an opportunity to as it basically has literally and figuratively cleaned the slate, so to speak. And now you're going to be starting over and potentially building a new vineyard. That's going to be part of the future. But as it relates to the portfolio, as it relates to the family, as it relates to kind of your aspirational goals as a winemaker, what do you want to see in the next one, three, five years? Um, you know, I'd love to, to, to see some rain this winter and, um, <laughs> I'd love to see a year where, um, you know, we could, um, you know, not have some, not have any devastating fires. Um, you know, I, I don't, it's not too much to ask, I don't think, but um, yeah, it, you know, it's right now Spring Mountain and the Napa Valley is sort of just reeling back on, um, on our heels right now um, after these fires. I mean, we're still literally, I, you know, I, you know, you can't even go up Spring Mountain Road right now. It's still closed. 
Um, I was up there with our insurance adjusters earlier in the week and there, there were still fires burning on our property that I, we had to tell Cal Fire about some hotspots. So, I mean, it's still a really an active event. And so, you know, uh, to, to a certain extent, I'm still quite numb from it all. And, you know, seeing the, the heartache of our neighbors, you know, Kane Winery, you know, every building on their property practically burned down. Marston Winery burned, uh, Sherwin Family Vineyards, their winery burned. Um, Ritchie Creek, Barron's family. I mean, we're still in this state of complete shock and um, it's gonna be a long road back. Now, when you look at the view behind you, for instance, you know, that's the view from our, our lookout, our deck up at Spring Summer Ranch. And that little, our little lookout deck uh, did not burn, it survived. And, and, and being up there a couple days ago, looking out, you know, it's, I can, it's gonna bounce back, you know, it's not completely gone. It's, you know, um, you can see where there's some areas that are pretty damaged, but, you know, I, I, I believe it'll come back. And, and so, you know, going through this period of time and, and seeing our community struggle and so many people lost their family homes. And, and you know, that's the part that, you know, we, f we still feel really lucky, even though we lost so much, you know, we still, we have our family home in St. Helena, which was quite threatened. I mean, the fire burned within a quarter mile of our house. So um, in town here, so, but our, our hearts are really with our friends that, and, and the families that have lost their homes, their family homes, and uh, it's a lot of healing to do. So it's going to be a long road back. And, and certainly as we kind of plan, okay, what are we going to do now? I mean, like you mentioned, we kind of have a blank slate on this ranch um, to kind of start carving back, um, breathing life back into it and making it um, something for us. You know, I do look at our, our future and I, I always felt like this project was going to be a, um, a long-term kind of decades long project. I think that still, you know, holds true. And if, if not even more so now, um, and I know that, you know, if, if I have one of my kids that wants to get involved, I mean, that'd be great, but it's, it is something that, you know, to do it right, it takes more than one generation to come in and start from scratch and, and develop a, a mountain estate and really get it uh, up and, and running. And on. Um, so in the meantime, you know, I have great vineyards to work with. I'm really lucky. I make my wines at a facility uh, down in St. Helena that was unaffected. All my wine is stored in a warehouse before it's shipped out to our customers. So, you know, the majority of our business is totally intact still. And so really it's kind of building on that and, and marching forward. Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of adjectives used to describe the wine industry, but as our personal friends, specifically in Napa and Sonoma, I think the most important adjective is resilience. And, you know, in 2012, we had the earthquake and then you had fires, it seems like every year and you just don't know, it's hard enough right as an industry and as a, as a hobby or profession hobby uh, as a profession mother nature is different every single year and to have all of this extra stuff to have to deal with uh your resilience is just really second to none and, and quite honestly it's inspiring so uh, if if it's something that we can do and we're trying to do we can help build back better so to speak then i think we should do it we, we tell a lot of people because uh, they'll reach out to us and they'll say what can we do and i'm like buy wine just just buy wine. Don't, you don't have to buy it from us. Just go to their websites, buy wine. Uh, and, and I don't want to give the answer away to the final poll question, but I may have. Um, but the, the resilience that you have, and you, you talked about Marston family and Elizabeth is a second generation. And then you talked about the Schweigers, you know, and Diana and uh, Andy are second generation and you're second generation. So there's a, there's a whole family on that mountain. And, and everyone was impacted in some way, some very large ways. So 
the resilience you all show is, is noteworthy and certainly something that I, I will always raise a glass to. So cheers to, to you for what you're doing. Yeah, cheers. You know, and, and I think being a farmer, you know, growing grapes and, you know, you're in agriculture. So you're used to Mother Nature throwing you curveballs, you know, like you kind of do build up some kind of, you know, resilience in, from that, I think, initially. And, um, and I think we've just been hit harder. I mean, I, I, you know, my wife and I bought this company and, and you know, that's all, that's what we do. This is our livelihood. And, and um, you know, we bought it in 2014, like you mentioned, that fall before our even first harvest, um, there was the earthquakes and we lost a, all of our barrels crashed over where we were making wine and you know then the 17 fires which were near us and and the, you know it's been one thing after another and then you know COVID this year was really threw a wrench into you know visitation you know and uh, our selling wine in restaurants and um, but I, I feel like you know we we do have to we still have a lot of good things here you know we live in a beautiful place we've got our family and and, uh, and we've got our community, you know, and, and we're all in this together and um, it's going to be a long road. It's going to be a very tough road. There's, there's no doubt about it. And we'll have our good days and bad days. But, you know, seeing the support from all of our club members and, and customers and people that have known our wines, um, you know, you know, people like yourself, Martin, and that have, you know, poured out their support and said, hey, how can we help? I mean, it, it's really it's really unbelievable. It really helps keep us all here in Napa, you know staying strong knowing that you know there's people that believe in what we're doing and and um that's super super helpful good because we're not going away so uh we're, we're going to continue I mean, we started the company 10 years ago to tell stories and and we're a storytelling company and the stories we like telling and we tell exclusively are those from napa and sonoma we don't tell any other stories some stories are worth two bucks and i think you know where i'm going with that other <laughs> stories uh, are worth quite a bit more and certainly when we get to to meet and go behind the scenes of great people like yourself in this industry. It just makes what we do all the more worthwhile. And uh, Curtis Stanley, you are absolutely correct. Uh, this Sam's your, your humility, Sam, and your perseverance and resilience is impressive. And it's something that we can all learn from uh, your passion. Debbie Long is admitting is really, she admires your passion and commitment to the grit. Uh, and to the grid. And it's okay if Mother Nature wants to throw a curveball now and then, but it's those odd years where she rolls up her sleeve, lights the curveball on fire, blindfolds you, and, and wraps it in barbed wire that really, those are not the fun ones. So uh, I want to actually, you know, wrap up for, because we've got a lot of final thanks to give. Uh, first of all, Sam, thank you so much to you and, and sharing the story. And by the way, I was I was really interested in the fact that your house is in Napa and Sonoma and you can see Calistoga, you can see the Pacific, you can see, uh, I'm just, I just want to know, is there a guest room that I should be telling people about? Is there anything that, what's that look like? Well, you know, you know, the house that we, that we had that we lost sadly um, was pretty small. And so we had offices in there, no bedrooms, but you know, we have our Airstream trailer. The first thing I did when I got up there that night and, and our, and there was fire everywhere. I hooked my truck up to the Airstream and, and pulled it out of there. And um, so that's going to be the first thing that's going to go back up there uh, is our gonna build, build around the airstream. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there are worse, there are worse design plans. Well, I, I'm, I'm not done thanking you yet, but I want to thank all the folks at Birch Road and Kim for putting that event together in Chicago. And, and we hope everyone enjoyed this uh, great in-depth interview with Sam and, and featuring some of his wines. You guys got to enjoy the Riesling as did I. I moved on to the Reserve Cabernet, uh, of which is absolutely fantastic. 
So Kim and, and the Birch Road folks, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. We hope everyone stays safe. And then Emma, I want to bring you back on and, and, and actually see what, I, I'm afraid to see what Sam I'm a little scared. I'm a little scared, Martin. Are you all able to see my screen? Yes, we are. Great. Oh, nice. I like the canopy management. <laughs> Thank you. That's cool. Wow. And uh, for those of you that have registered via Zoom, I think we're going to be sending this out to everyone. Yeah, and we'll, we'll post it as well. And we're going to post it online as well. People in the studio are telling me that that wasn't true until I said it. So now that we're, it is true now. So uh, it was always true. So uh, I'll let Denise shine back on and um, we'll let everyone get on their way. But, but that is actually super cool, Emma. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Great conversation, you guys. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for the kind words. Um, and Emma, I need you to stop sharing and then Denise and I are gonna, oh, perfect. Uh, everyone on the comment line and Sam, we're gonna send you the comments in a little bit. Uh, it was really, it was very, very, uh, it was clean this week. So I'm very happy with the group. Uh, they behaved for most of it. But uh, honestly, Sam, thank you and your family. And I know you've got three, you got a busy household with three children. So be well, we'll be in touch. Uh, we can't do this without you. And thanks so much for all you've done and your persistence and attitude. It really is humbling and inspiring. Yeah, well, cheers. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Cheers, my friend. Be good. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you.